Within a few fateful days, in the year 79 AD, entire towns were buried and burned, and thousands perished beneath toxic blasts of hot volcanic ash and crushing debris. The eruption of Mount Vesuvius to the south of Rome left the picturesque Bay of Naples in ruins, devastating vibrant cities like Pompeii and Herculaneum, leaving them never to be inhabited again, reclaimed by nature. The images of desperation and grief, of fire and smoke, of terror and of courage, fixed in the minds of survivors who would live to pass on the tales of what had seemed to them like the true end of the world. One such survivor was Gaius Plinius Caecilius Secundus, known as Pliny the Younger, in later life a man of letters and a high-ranking senator of Rome, but still eighteen years old when he witnessed firsthand the eruption of Mount Vesuvius, an event that would even claim the life of his uncle, the famous naturalist Pliny the Elder. In a set of letters written to his friend, the historian Cornelius Tacitus, Pliny recalls those days in scenes that would grip centuries of later readers and bring the grim scenes of the eruption back to life. These are the survivor's words. This is what Pliny remembered. To my dear Tacitus, greetings. You asked me to send you what I remember about how my uncle died, so you can record the real story for generations on. And I thank you for this, my friend. The tale of his heroism will endure forever once your pen writes it down. Although he died in a tragedy, one that ruined that beautiful land and left so many bustling towns in ashes, I'm glad that his memory will live on this way, in your immortal histories, along with the great work that he himself left behind during his life. The gods have truly blessed those who do great deeds worthy of remembering, and those who tell of great deeds so that they are remembered. But most blessed of all are those, like you and my uncle both, who do great deeds in your everlasting writings. And so I'm happy to share what you have asked from me. The pleasure of recalling his memory for you is all mine. When it all happened, my uncle was stationed then with the fleet of ships under his command at the port of Misenum. It was nine days before the calends of September, around one in the afternoon, when my mother called him over to look at a cloud, incredibly large and oddly shaped, rising over the mountains across the bay from our house. My uncle had just been outdoors, then taken a bath, had some lunch, and gotten back to his books as usual, and he went out right away to observe this unusual cloud from higher ground. Which mountain it was coming from, he couldn't tell from that far away. Of course, now we know it was Vesuvius. The cloud over it was rising up 
shaped something like a pine tree, the way it shot straight up like a tall trunk, then branched out wide at the top, from maybe the gusts of wind, or the forces of air moving up and down, or the cloud being pressed down at the top by its own weight. And it changed color, sometimes bright, other times dark and spotted, looking like it was heavy with earth and ash. For an inquisitive man like my uncle, this seemed like the perfect subject for further study. So he ordered a ship to be ready, and asked if I'd like to come along with him. But I told him no, since there was some homework he'd given me to do. And as he was coming out of the house, a note was delivered from Rectina, Bassus's wife, who was panicking and begging for his help, since her villa was at the foot of Mount Vesuvius, and there was no way she could escape. Right away, the mission changed for my uncle, and so did he. The scholarly mind of the naturalist gave way to the brave soul of a rescuer. He ordered the fleet to be put to sea, and went himself on board, to not only save Rectina, but give aid to the other towns that lay all along that shoreline. He raced into the very place where others were fleeing, terrified, steering the fleet right into the mouth of danger. And even then, he kept such a cool awareness that he could still dictate what he observed and interpreted of the frightening natural phenomena at the scene. By now, he was so close to the mountain that the cinders were falling onto the ships, getting denser and hotter as they sailed on, and they were pelted with pumice and black shards of burning rock. They were in danger of running aground off the coast, since the tide had rapidly pulled away, and the heaps of ashes rolling down the mountain clouded their view of the shore in darkness. Here he thought about turning back, as the helmsman advised him. But then he commanded, Fortune favors the brave. Steer for Pomponianus's villa. Our friend Pomponianus was then at the town of Stabiae, separated by a bay carved out from the windings of the shore. Seeing the danger coming soon, but not under the ash and fire just yet, he had already sent his baggage on board a ship and was ready to sail as soon as the wind stopped pounding straight against the coast, as it was now. But the same wind helped my uncle sail in to where Pomponianus was, who was scared witless by all that was happening. When he had landed, my uncle embraced him warmly, and gave him courage to keep his spirits up, above all by showing himself to be calm and assured of their safety and so he ordered a bath to be drawn for himself inside, then sat down for a meal, cheerful as ever. Or maybe he was just appearing that way, which is no less incredible. Meanwhile, now there were massive flames shining out from all over Vesuvius, gleaming even brighter against the pitch darkness of the night. But my uncle still tried to keep his friend from being afraid, and told him it was only the homes and the villages burning, which the country folk had left and given up to the fire. After this, he went off to get some rest, 
and he seems to have been calm enough to sleep soundly, since those outside the room say they could hear him snoring. But by now, the courtyard that led to his room was almost filled with stones and ashes, and any more time spent delaying would mean there was no escape. So he was awoken, and went to Pomponianus and his men, none of whom had gotten a wink of sleep. They consulted as a group whether it would be better to shelter in the house, which was rocking back and forth more and more frequently with violent quaking, or if they should make a run for the open fields, which were still under a rain of stones and cinders. When the choice came, they decided on the fields, and my uncle led the men in this with a cool head, not giving way to panic like the rest. And so they made a break for it, tying pillows on their heads with napkins, the only protection they had against the storm that fell on every side. At this hour, it was daytime everywhere else, but here was a deeper darkness than the thickest black of night, relieved only by torches and other glints of flame. They thought to go further down the shore to see if they could safely make it out to sea, but the waves were huge and churning angrily. There my uncle lay down on a sailcloth that was spread out for him and called twice for some cold water to drink. But soon the flames and a wind of sulfurous fumes made everyone in their group scatter. With the help of two slaves with them, he tried to rise to his feet again. But then my uncle fell down to the ground, dead, gone in an instant. He was suffocated, I think, by the toxic air. He had always had trouble with his throat. As soon as it was light again, which wasn't until the third day after the disaster began, they found his body there on the shore, with not a mark on him, in the very clothes in which he died. He looked more asleep than dead. Now, during all this time, my mother and I were back at Misenum. After my uncle left, I did my schoolwork, you remember the reason I had stayed behind, until it was time for my bath. Then I had supper, and slept that night only short and anxiously. For days before that, the earth had been trembling from time to time, but we didn't think much of it, since it's not unusual there in Campania. But that night, it was so violent that it seemed to tear everything around us up from the bottom. My mother rushed into my bedroom, where she found me just getting up, and we sat down together in the open courtyard of the house, a little space between the building and the waterfront. I was only eighteen years old then, and I don't know if I should call what I did brave or foolish, but I went back to reading my copy of Livy's History of Rome, even copying out some passages from it, as if it was just another day. A friend of my uncle's, who had just come to visit from Spain, found us there, and when he saw me just sitting and reading, he gave us a piece of his mind for being so calm and careless 
amid all that was going on. But all the same, I went on reading. Although it was morning now, the daylight was incredibly faint and dim. The buildings all around us were swaying from the tremors, and even though we were out in the open, it was too narrow to be completely safe if something were to collapse. So eventually we decided to pack up and leave town, and we joined a panic-stricken crowd that pressed in on us from every side as we came out. Once we had gone far enough to be at a safe distance from the buildings, we stopped in the middle of a truly frightening scene all around. The carts we had ordered to come with us could hardly move straight because of the quaking, even on level ground. And out at sea, the waves were rolling backwards, sucked out to the middle of the water by the convulsing of the earth. The dry land stretched far out now, and we saw animals from the sea washed up and dry on the bottom. And the other side of the bay was fully swallowed up in an enormous black cloud, broken up by quick, zigzagging flashes of light that glinted off the rolling masses of fire deeper within. At the sight of this, our friend from Spain came up to us and said to each of us, If your brother, if your uncle is still safe, he would want you to be safe too. But if he won't come back, he would want you to survive. So why are you waiting here for a single moment longer? We answered that we could never think of our own safety when we didn't know his. And with this, our friend moved on quickly from the danger, leaving us behind. Not long after this, the black cloud from the mountain began to descend and sweep down over the sea, and now it surrounded and hid the island of Capreae and the tip of Messenum, where we were. My mother now begged, even commanded me, to make my escape, even if alone, which I could easily do, since I was still young. But as for her, she was too old and too big to move fast enough, and she would rather die knowing I was safe than force us both to wait too long and go under the black cloud together. But I refused, flat out, to leave her, and took her by the hand to go with me. Only after a long protest did she finally agree. And now the ashes began to fall on us from above, though they were coming only lightly. I looked back to see that a thick, dark mist seemed to be following us, spread out like a cloud over the whole countryside. I had the idea that we should get off the main road while we could still see, in case we were to stumble in the dark and be crushed under the crowds of people who were flooding out of town in fear. We had hardly sat down when night fell over us, a night darker than when the skies are cloudy or the moon is new. It was more like a room with no windows locked up and all the lights put out. Unseen, but all through the air, you would hear the screams of women, the cries of children, the fearful shouting of men. 
Some were calling for their children, some for their parents, some for their husbands, trying to find each other by the voices that answered back. Someone was grieving over his fate, someone else over the fate of his family. Some were wishing for death to save them from the fear of dying. Some were lifting up their hands to the gods, but even more knew that there were no gods here at all anymore, that the final, endless night had at last come upon the whole world. Among the crowds, there were some who made the real terrors worse by adding imaginary ones, that part of Misenum had crumbled into the sea, that another part was on fire. And people believed this. Now it was getting a little lighter, which we thought was the harbinger of blasting flames coming toward us, rather than daylight coming back. And in fact, we were right. But the fire fell far away, and didn't reach us. Then again we were swallowed up in blackness, and a hail of ashes rained down on us, which we had to stand up and shake off from our bodies from time to time, to avoid getting buried in the heap. During all these scenes of horror, I could boast that I uttered not a word of fear, but the truth was that I had a grim but powerful consolation. I imagined that all humankind was suffering this same apocalypse along with me, that I was there in my last minutes at the death of the world itself. But at last, this awful darkness grew fainter, like dissipating smoke, and the real daylight returned, though with a strange, glaring light, like when an eclipse is coming. Everything we saw, dim though it appeared to our weak eyes, seemed transformed, covered deep with ashes, as if under snow. We returned to Misenum, where we cleaned ourselves up as well as we could, and we spent an anxious night wavering between hope and fear, though, in truth, much more fear than hope. The earthquakes were still shaking, and people driven mad ran up and down the streets, stoking everyone's dread with predictions of doom. But at that point, my mother and I had no thoughts of leaving the place, not until we had some news of my uncle. And so, my friend, I will end here, and add only that everything I've shared was either an eyewitness event, or something I learned from others right after it happened, before there was time for the story to change. Take from all these memories of mine whatever you deem most important for your work. Writing a letter to a friend is one thing, and writing history for all posterity is quite another. And with that, I say farewell. <laughs>